0: You're listening to the best of a place of peace. Hello, everyone. Peggy Stanton here. Welcome to A Place of Peace, a show specifically designed to show us the way to peace in our own hearts. Today, we are going to examine the thoughts and actions of a former United States Senator whose own personal peace came through voting his conscience despite great personal and political consequences. Senator Mark Hatfield of Oregon was a chapter in a book I wrote called The Daniel Dilemma. It was about the moral man in the public arena. It examined the lives of nine religious and famous men in their various venues of public life who were willing to be wrong in popular opinion in order to be right with their conscience, no matter the cost. In Senator Hatfield's case, many thought the cost was the presidency. Senator Hatfield had every attribute considered desirable for the job. He had vast state and national government experience. He had been a state representative, a state senator, a secretary of state, a two-term governor, and then a United States senator. He was an eloquent orator, a commanding vote-getter. A handsome man, he even looked the part. When he arrived in Washington, he was almost immediately tagged presidential timber. His passionate opposition to the Vietnam War, however, in conflict with his party and even his Christian friends, erased that option from his illustrious career. In a two-hour, never-before-aired interview with Senator Hatfield for the book we discussed the reasons and repercussions of following one's conscience in public life. I asked Senator Hatfield the origins of his opposition to the Vietnam War. Why was this so deep in your soul? This feeling that you were ready to just chuck everything to, to win that cause.
1: Well, I had expressed that more or less in letters when I had been in that area, in Haiphong and Hanoi in 1945, at a time when we were allies of Ho Chi Minh. Uh, And uh, my parents had kept the letters. But I remember feeling this intensity of uh, reaction against colonial regimes when we came into the harbor at Haiphong. An early morning, I remember we looked up on a, on a hill overlooking the harbor, seeing the glistening of all this color mosaic. We didn't know what in the world it was. We were coming into the harbor to pick up Chiang Kai-shek's troops, which had marched overland uh, from China in order to take them up around the full length of China to fight the Chinese communists up near Manchuria. And as we came more into focus, we could see that this was a marvelous, beautiful uh, casino up on top of this hill overlooking the harbor. Mm-hmm. And in our Shore Liberty that we had there, we went up and it was just steps, went around this hill right up to this great Monte Carlo of Southeast Asia. It was what it was. It was the French Monte Carlo. But all around the base of this, this hill, were these little horrible shacks and the mass of humanity that was crowded together in abject poverty. There was never a more graphic experience in my life showing the, this, the, the gap between the haves and the have-nots. Here were the French who had come there to gamble money away in the very presence of those who were literally starving to death, at their feet. And it was such a such an indelible impression about the, the inadequ- inequity, the injustice, the cruelty of colonialism. Mm-hmm. And I wrote these thoughts home at the time. And I had no great insights or gifts of prophecy or anything else. But those made such impressions that I said in those letters in 1945, if the Western world ever attempts to reestablish it's boot, it's heel upon these people. I use the word, it's heel upon these people. They'll rise up, not only spit in their face, but they will create violence.
0: Hmm. The senator had seen much terrible violence as a young ensign in World War II when he fought in the Battle of Iwo Jima.
1: In the battles of Iwo Jima and Okinawa, we were on, I was there as... On D-Day and H-Hour, mm. and it uh, pretty bloody and horrible mess. It was one of the worst uh, losses of life. It was a battle that probably took more life per square mile of captured territory than any other battle in the Pacific. And I think there, again, one is stunned almost into such uh, uh, fear, and I, I must say it was fear. You move mechanically. You, you know what you're to do. You have those instructions well in mind. And you move, though, but you're just moving, sort of a numbness.
0: I've always wondered what it like when you're yeah. in
1: it. And uh, I remember that even then, uh, they kept saying in midshipman school, no matter how difficult the battle or the task, keep a sense of humor. And I thought that was a silly <laughs> conundrum that was probably passed out because it had been said so many years, and they just maybe always everything by tradition. So, in the Battle of Iwo, we were uh, we were in landing craft, which is a flat-bottom boat with a ramp that drops down at the bow. It's a it's a square bow, yeah. and then the Marines run off. You see, off. Well, the principle of that is that you 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 run up on the beach to to stabilize the boat, and then you drop your ramp, and the Marines move off, and then you then you uh, retract your boat. Well, Ewo had a beach that came off. It had no beach. It just was a, it was just dropped off perpendicular. So actually, our boats were never stabilized. And as the men would run out, the water would rush in, and, and boats were being sunk. There were more boats sunk there than there were boats afloat. And, uh, well, you didn't stay in them very long. You scrambled out. I mean,
0: you didn't see anybody die from that. No, not
1: actually? from that. They were usually. Uh, The Marines were able to get out, and you kept the engine pushing forward all the time. You keep the forward motion to your engine to hold the boat into that thing, but it was still, it meant the men got out of the boat, the boat crew, and those of us, I had command of 10 of those landing craft, what they called a wave, 10 of them hit the beach Mm -hmm. at one time. But what happened was that usually then the boats would sink, and we'd have to pick up our own crews elsewhere. you see in the water. Mm -hmm. Uh, Well, our boat was taking water on the first wave that we hit the beach, and the and retracting from it, uh, it was very obvious we had to do something quickly. And uh, I uh, ordered the men to uh, to bail <clears throat> with the buckets. I had two buckets, regular, you know, galvanized yeah. tin buckets. <clears throat> well, everyone was so frightened and scared with all this horrible Depression. noise. And then because the, all the battleships were up there, the French and the Australians and Americans, and they were laying this fire down on them island and they reached down, scooped up a bucket of, of water and threw it overside, but threw the bucket and all overboard with the first bail. Well, I was
0: so
1: they were just so scared <laughs> oh, they, and, and there were stunned. What in the world there went the buckets and there the water was still in the boat. Well, you know you couldn't help but laugh because it just made everybody knew how stupid it was <laughs> And Here in the midst of all this, everybody started to laugh. (laughs) Our boat's sinking; we're laughing. You know, kind of nutty, but um, it may broke that for that very second, though. That laugh broke the tension sufficient to, you know, they wondered what. And I said, "Take your helmets off." And so they took off their helmets and used them to to bail,
0: which gave them many more buckets. That's right. Not
1: very big. Well, uh, we had to bail faster, but and we salvaged our boat as a result. But it was just one of those crazy things at that, that unbelievable moment yeah. that we had to laugh. Yeah.
0: And if you think if you hadn't laughed, you might not have even thought of the helmet? Well, I'm
1: sure it wouldn't. I, I don't think that our brain was functioning at that moment. I think our brain was as numb as our bodies and our, and our spirit.
0: It seemed as if Senator Hatfield had held on to his opposition to the Vietnam War with total abandonment.
1: Total abandonment and uh,
0: But it cost you probably oh, the presidency. May have. Is that a disappointment? No.
1: Really? Oh, no, I wouldn't have done it any other way. I feel a complete peace about it. You know, even during that time, it was an interesting ambivalence that, uh, of feelings that came to me. I would go into a totally hostile audience. Oh, so hostile! You could just feel it and see it in their faces. Were you afraid? No, never was afraid of any audience in that at that time or any other time. But I would go into a totally hostile audience. that would come out in the greatest numbers ever because they were there to really get some kind of revenge. Some of them were, and. I would start speaking, and I would say, hear me out. Just hear me out. And I said, now, what I have to do is to go back and reconstruct history. Because we've been so misled. Our government has lied to us for so long that we begin to believe lie as truth. And it is lie. And I'm going to say to you tonight, to start with, that this Vietnam policy is a lie.
0: Oh, that was hitting him right. And that <laughs> way got the, I got their attention. They certainly
1: did. <laughs> and they began to back off, and it says you could almost feel at that moment that they had set up an environment that they thought I was going to pussyfoot into or that I was going to cower. Mm. And in effect, I went there and said, I'm going to tell it as it is, and here's my fist. Mm. And then I would tell them why I felt as I did by going back and reconstructing t- my involvement
0: in Vietnam. In that whole...
1: And they didn't know this. And they'd begin to open their eyes. And they'd begin to listen. And I would say, and here's what happened in history. This is what happened when Bao Dai was put into power. This is what happened when Diem succeeded in power. This is what Eisenhower said. And this is what MacArthur said. And on through. And I'd build, and that, And I said, that is why I believe as I believe. And you know, almost without exception, I would get a standing ovation hmm. from that audience. And I would sense a conversion of those people to my viewpoint.
0: Almost every time?
1: Almost every time. without Well, I can say I know of no exception.
0: You know, you changed me in uh, not quite so simple. Oh, really? You did. (laughs) I mean, I really was so ambivalent. Again, though, though, it was only because we didn't have the background.
1: The average American has never had the background of a a way off place like Southeast Asia. But then what would happen? Is that the president would make some further statement that, you know, just another little time or a few more thousand men or uh, this is the Battle of Armageddon and we've got to stop the communists here. Or the Portland, Oregonian would hear about my speech and then they would come out and just tear me up asunder. They wrote almost a weekly edit. There was almost an editorial a week. Sometimes there were two editorials a week, lead editorials. Hatfield and his Reasoning of Air Hatfield, who is a friend of Hanoi, mm-hmm. and on and on. So I would then sense that what I had done in that audience was undone, yeah. and I was never making any kind of yeah. uh, collective headway.
0: So that's where that terrible frustration oh. came and saying, "I, I really, you were ready to quit."
1: Yes, because you see, they could raise the bloody shirt of some poor serviceman, and all of the logic. And all of the history and all of the reasoning that I had engaged in, not emotionally, but yes. just with emphasis, yes. and had persuaded and had appealed to their mind, oh. you know. Then this one thing that appealed to their heart, you know, that just
0: wiped out <laughs> emotionally. So, yeah. Um during that whole siege for Vietnam, what was the most agonizing circumstance? Was it the Christians or was it what about that time of voting, the one no vote in Los Angeles? Was that hard?
1: Well, the one, and the year prior to that yeah, was in Minneapolis. But yeah. uh, that was difficult. Uh, yes, that was difficult because I was attacked then by my fellow governors. I remember John Conley saying, you have done a great disservice to your nation. You stand as a traitor to your nation.
0: Really? Use the word trade? Gee. Oh What did you say? Did you reply to that? No,
1: I just said that's not true. And walked off. And I had was being interviewed. And I can't remember whether it was the Louisiana governor and their
0: friends. Who stepped in front of the microphone?
1: Yes. Was yes, that's right. Stepped right up in front of the microphone and took over the whole interview. Oh, did
0: he take over the whole? Geez.
1: Just he wouldn't. He would. Do? He would not. He was so infuriated, so infuriated, he couldn't believe that these these newsmen would permit me to to say to the country anything that would, uh, would validate that that uh, traitorous vote.
0: This led us to discuss how one accepts. Criticism as a Christian. As a human, criticism is terribly, terribly painful. Of course. Uh, But as a Christian, supposedly we're learning to accept it, and uh, if we're humble, we can accept it. But that must be a constant struggle.
1: It is, but don't forget what the Scripture says, too. It says, you know, what virtue is there if the criticism comes that is valid, and you receive it and accept it? As contrasted, to when the criticism is unjust mm. and you are have the grace of Christ to accept it and receive it. Can you? Uh, yes, uh, I can, but not always with grace. I can uh, uh, probably as often by political pragmatism as I do with grace. I think the criticism that I got during the uh, Vietnam period yeah. when uh, being a sort of uh, a minority, minority, a real minority, and as I said in the book, not so much from my political <coughs> uh, constituency, but the from Christ. my Christian constituency mm. was where I really found it most difficult because I could take sort of that pragmatic reaction mm-hmm. toward my political constituency but I couldn't put my Christian was that really agonizing yeah.
0: was that the toughest what was the, that was the, was that the, the t- toughest thing on the opposite end of that spectrum is the ego which senator hatfield said was his greatest challenge that to me is still one of the great questions of how a man can be a truly good Christian, a simple man like the fisherman, so to speak, and uh, followed Christ and be set up as a tin god himself. I mean, it, it, as you said, it's the, it's the war. Your biggest war is the ego. It is it the place for the moral man in the public? Yes, world? and
1: and I would like to at this point stress again what ego. Ego is so oftentimes thought of as conceit. But ego is far more than that. Ego is self-first, is the selfhood.
0: Well... Plus he's got to compromise, he's got to do, you know, so many...
1: I think that, uh, you see, we tend to to set these uh, scenes in terms of... uh, implying that maybe christ is not relevant to these circumstances that we have to get into an environment only a certain special contrived environment in order to live the life i don't think that is true i think christ is relevant in any walk in any position in any relationship of life i think it's a question that we have to raise is one that how is christ relevant to this how am i living my life as as a witness for christ uh when all this other is pushing in upon me, it's the competition. Yeah. You see?
0: Conflict. It's <laughs> the
1: conflict. It's all of these things, and those are valid observations. But I I, I think the real basic question is Christ relevant? Mm. Can one live the Christian life? Well, I think Christ is relevant to any and all ages, times, occasions, positions. But, again, it may be more difficult to put one's relationships and loyalties into order. Uh, Christ doesn't excuse the rich or the powerful. In fact, he says, unto whom much is given, much shall be expected. We have, in, in some ways, a harder task because we have been blessed, we have been given more responsibility or more more of a particular skill. but. In ratio to that, we have greater requirements.
0: Hmm. Senator Hatfield asserted that Christianity puts us in greater tension.
1: The person who really doesn't have any relationship to Christ can go merrily along his way, serving self, serving everything else that he serves as God, and have fairly, can have a fairly... uh, tranquil life. Mm. He's always going to have a hunger for something. He's not Mm. quite sure what it is, but he's always going to have an inner hunger. May it manifest itself more at times than other times. But when you say, I want to receive Christ as uh, the displacement for ego and be reborn in Christ spirit, there you are immediately in confrontation. Paul says, I wrestle daily. I wrestle daily with the old self, the old man. And if Saint Paul could wrestle daily, <laughs> I wrestle by the minute, <laughs> you know, in comparison. I mean you, So you're you. always in confrontation because you always have the model, here's Christ the yeah. perfect, yeah. here's self the imperfect. Yeah. So you immediately have drawn the confrontation, and there it is. Yeah. And it is a constant battle for me. It's uh, I'm in in addition to that, I'm immersed in a ego centered culture, yeah. a professional culture. Yeah. Yeah. Politics, yeah, public acclaim, public piz, public. And by the same token, I'm, I'm a target for attack. Both because I'm in public office mm-hmm. and because uh, I may be noted for having a, a Christian label. Mm-hmm. Hopefully it's more than a label. Mm-hmm. Uh, so immediately, therefore, when I talk about Christ may thrust you into greater tension,
0: that's what I mean. Because you're, how do you... I Practically, pragmatically handle the fact, as you said in your book. I mean, Senator, this. Let me open the uh, elevator, and oh, Senator, what a wonderful speech! And that was my uh-huh. lesson. And you can't. I mean, I know from broadcasting. You get it. Sure, you cannot, you're in the same situation. You It's a it's a terrible struggle not to feel a personal satisfaction when you give a good speech and everybody's sure. applauding. And
1: uh, well, the Lord works in mysterious ways and wonders truth to perform. I don't think it's a self-how-to situation entirely. I think uh, one positions himself again in that relationship by asking God in prayer to uh, keep you in proper perspective and help me to keep my perspective correct. Mm-hmm. And I think God answers that. And he answers it in very funny and little insignificant things, if we are but sensitive. You know, this is another thing. I pray most of all for love and sensitivity. Sensitivity to be... Uh, well, just sensitivity to be sensitive. Mm. You know what I mean? Mm. To be open, to be to be alert to what God is trying to say to me in a still, small voice. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, we often oftentimes expect God to either give us a blueprint... Or to hit us over the head to tell, give us a direction or give us some kind of answer. But I found that God communicates with, that I can communicate with God and God can answer my communication, my prayers, in very small little pieces that form after a while a mosaic that I may not see Mm. for a long while. Mm. And that if I'm sensitive to the little things that He puts together Mm -hmm. for me, God has never spoken to me uh, that I know of, that I'm aware of, in a loud voice. So if I am sensitive, then I can hear these things. I can see these things. It can be, uh, well, let me just illustrate. I was, I was home and I made a long distance call. And the operator said, uh, and who, what name is the credit card issued to This is in Oregon. I said, Mark Hatfield. She said, how do you spell that last <laughs> name? <thing? laughs> this is in Oregon. I know. <laughs> well, I spelled it for her. Now, I have, a, I have a strong feeling that God was speaking to me yeah. through that operator.
0: Yeah.
1: Saying, hey, listen, guy. You know, there are people in Oregon who never heard of you and could care less.
0: What do you find the most satisfying aspect? What the casework. <laughs> Seriously? Oh yeah. So does
1: Bill. Oh, I think when I can, when there is a sense of helping someone, and somebody, and, and when you least expect somebody to come and say, "You helped me," yeah. thank you. Yeah. Five years ago, six years yeah. ago, ten years ago, yeah. you know, you helped me. Yeah. That's just <laughs> that's just like getting a shot of adrenaline. adrenaline.
0: I think the point that Senator Hatfield made about Christianity not making life necessarily easier is a very important point for us to consider, especially in these difficult and dark times in which we're living. Here's what he said that I think we should remember. He said, oftentimes people think being a good Christian means that everything is going to be wonderful that everything will move ahead with achievement and success. I think that we are thrust into greater tension by the fact that we acknowledge Christ. But in all of this, there is that all-pervading knowledge and experience that we are never the victims of the circumstance. Even though we are in the circumstance, we can still be above it. Basically, it comes down to this. Christ called us not to acquire, not to achieve, not to be successful. He called us to one thing, faithfulness. That was from Senator Mark Hatfield, a man of great principle and conscience. Would that we had more Mark Hatfields today. This is Peggy Stanton signing off on A Place of Peace.